Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. Welcome to The Moth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Kennedy. This week, we're celebrating a new year and a new decade with two stories about wrapping up old chapters and starting to write new ones. Uh, I don't, I don't, what do I have to say about the new year? I can tell you this, uh, I don't have any plans I do think my girlfriend and I should maybe go visit my great aunt Nancy. She is 86 years old. She lives about five hours away from us. We visited her a month ago and oddly just had one of the most life-affirming moments. We were in an olive garden. Her late partner, Bob, had just passed away uh, a month or so ago. I ordered the cheese ravioli. She said uh, that that's what Bob always ordered. And then she thought for a moment and said, but that's all history now, and it's sad. And I said, yeah, it is sad. And then she paused and looked up with this gleam in her eye and kind of this, like, slightly smart-ass grin and said, life is sad, and shrugged her shoulders, and she started laughing, and Maria and I started cracking up, and there's the three of us sitting at a table in an olive garden cracking up over the fact that life is sad, and somehow that was a totally affirming moment for me in 2019. First up on this week's episode of The Moth Podcast, Eliana Science. Eliana told this story at a story slam in Los Angeles where the theme of the night was fathers. Here's Eliana live at The Moth. Uh, when I was uh, seven years old, my father went missing and they never found him. It was, uh, it was a very hazy part of my life, but uh, he was in law enforcement and it was a drug bust gone very terribly wrong. And a lot of unanswered questions. And it's something that took me over 20 years to really deal with and to come, come to peace with. And I didn't come to peace with it until about a year and a half ago. Uh, I got a job in marketing and I had to be flown out to Miami for training. And that just so happened to be where I lived and where the accident happened. And because we didn't have a body, we had no grave, but there was a memorial. And there was a memorial in Miami that I hadn't been to in over 20 years because I couldn't bring myself to go. So I went to Miami and I stayed with my father's brother and we hadn't seen each other in over 20 years because when something that freak happens, it either makes or breaks the family and with our family, it broke our family. And we had a really nice time and he told me a lot of stories about my father. And I told him how I wanted to go to the memorial and go see uh, my father's memorial. And he said, you know, it's, it's just right down the road. And he's like, do you want me to go with you? And I said, no, this is something that I need to do for myself. And so I rented a car 
And the whole entire drive there was 80s music uh, that reminded me of my father and reminded me of my childhood in Miami. And I got to this big park and I had no idea where I was going or where the memorial in this huge park was, but I just listened to my intuition and I drove and I, I came to it. And it was rebuilt and it was all for the fallen officers and it was really beautiful, but it was like an island in the middle of this park and there was a gate that you had to go in to get to it. And I am so trying to hold myself together in every sense of the word. I am so nervous, I'm highly emotional, and this is one of the biggest steps that I had to do to bring peace to this. So I got to the gate and it's locked. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? I, I, this is one of the only times that I can come here. And so I saw this uh, worker on this tractor and I go up to him and I'm shaking and I'm just holding myself together. And I said, I, I need to get into that memorial. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm sorry, it's locked. They locked it yesterday and it won't be open for another week. And he's like, why do you want to go in there? And I'm just, I can barely talk. And I said, my dad's memorial is in there and I need to get in there. And he just looks at me and he gets it. And he goes, okay, follow me. So he unlocks the gate and I, I go in with him. And he knows exactly how to handle me and exactly what to say and he shows me all the all the things that they had done in the garden that they had planted and how they had taken the old marble from the older memorial into the new memorial and he just looks at me and he says I'm going to leave you here for an hour and then I'm going to come back and and check up on you and I thank him and I'm walking towards the memorial and it's this these beautiful marble pillars with uh, American flags up on it and all my senses are completely heightened. I can feel the wind on my face. I can smell everything really, really heightened. And I go and I, I find my father's name. And I, I run my finger over his name probably about a hundred times because it was so surreal to me to see his name right there and have some sort of grave to go to and I sat underneath a tree and I wrote him a letter and it's not one of the letters that I had written to him in the past the the ones that were really angry and really upset and really mad at everything and everybody it was a letter um, thanking him and thinking and telling him how proud I was to be his daughter and how proud I was of everything that he had done and how amazing I think he is. And I wrote the letter and I folded it up and the man who worked in the, in the uh, park came back and he got me. And he escorted me out and I turned around and I, I said my goodbye. And I said not a goodbye to my father, but I said goodbye to the pain that I had endured for over 20 years. So the next day, my, my mother's uh, brother said, I have something to give you before you go back to LA. I've been hanging on to this for over 20 years. 
and he gives me a plaque of, um, that was given to us uh, during, after the accident, and it was from the president, and it had my father's name on it, and it, had, and it was thanking us for his service to the country. And I, things were really busy, so I, I couldn't wrap up this big plaque. So I put it in a bag, and I had to board the plane to go to LA, and I give it to the air host, and I said, um, you, you really need to make sure that I get this. Like, please do not let me forget this because it was too big to go in the overhead compartment. And so we finally landed it in LA and the air host and the air hostess, they, they pulled me aside and they said, oh, is this your plaque? And I was like, oh yeah, that is. And they were like, we've been looking at it. It's so beautiful. And, and who's this, this man's name right here? We were wondering who this was. And this has got to be the single most proudest moment of my life, and I look at them and I say, that's my dad, that's my dad, thank you. That was Eliana Science. When we followed up with Eliana, she let us in on another piece of the story that didn't make it into the live version. Here's Eliana. When I was at my father's memorial in Miami, I was so overcome with emotion that I really didn't know what to do. I brought a notebook with me, so I sat down and wrote a fictional story that just came to me with a man as the leading character. I finished the story and didn't look at it again. A year later, on the anniversary of my father's death, I ended up at a restaurant where I met a man named Ernesto, who ended up becoming my husband. Some years after we got together, I found that old notebook where I had written that story at my father's memorial. And guess what the name of the Lee character was? Yep, Ernesto. I really strongly believe my father had a hand in bringing my husband and I together. That was Eliana Science. Eliana is an actress, avid people watcher, food enthusiast, and film buff living in LA with her very own live-in chef, her husband, these days, she's perfecting her left hook, right hand in boxing class. To see some photos of Eliana's father, his memorial, and the plaque, just head over to our website, themoth.org. Up next, a story from Otis Gray. Otis told this story here in New York City at a Grand Slam where the theme of the night was without a net. Here's Otis live at The Moth. On paper, um, you'd think that you'd hit rock bottom when you just answered a Craigslist ad for a job wrapping a naked guy in duct tape in South Philadelphia. <laughs> but you'd be wrong. Rock bottom is not getting that job. Yeah, he, he turned me away at the door when he opened it and was visibly shocked that Otis was not a girl's name, um, which is both stupid and sexist. Uh, but I had just spent uh, four years at art school as a sculptor and uh, had an absent father, so I was accustomed to rejection to that point. <laughs> but at least with the duct tape, man, you know, there was, there was a reason why I got turned away. Shortly after, when I got rejected for the Fulbright Scholarship, there was not a reason. I, I got a form email saying, 
you have not received the Fulbright Scholarship, it is not our policy to explain the reasons for this outcome. Please do not contact us. I, I had spent nearly a year pouring my entire soul into this application, and you, you submit like your entire person. You have letters of recommendation, your entire body of work, um, your grades, a personal statement that defines you to your core, everything. And I know that the normal um, response to rejection is generally sadness and, and disappointment. My whole life, I've dealt with it like, okay, tell me, you know, how can I fix this? What can I do? Why? And now I was so, so mad. Like, you can't tell me what part of, which part of me wasn't good enough. Which was not a unique feeling, because while I do joke about my daddy issues, it was not his policy to explain the reasons for that outcome either. About a month later after I got rejected, uh, a former professor who knew I wasn't doing so hot called me and said, hey, you seem desperate. Um, <laughs> How do you want a job um, writing personalized rejection letters to high school students? <laughs> I have never been so good at something so quickly in my entire life. So this foundation, what they did was they gave uh, money to high school students pursuing summer programs in the arts. My job was to take the judge's feedback and craft it into these little personalized rejection letters. I was impartial. I didn't see them or their work, just the critique of it. That year, I wrote 160 letters, and these things were Shakespearean. <laughs> I was taking all this untethered rage I felt from being ambiguously rejected and making them into these poetic little compliment sandwiches, like, dear Layla, you know, your use of lights and dark in your charcoal is, is phenomenal, and you have a really unique grasp of composition for your age, but you gotta get out there and, and explore, girl. Get out of your comfort zone. Relentlessly follow your curiosity into the darkness. You owe this to yourself, Layla. <laughs> I, was, I was like the general patent to this this little brigade of art marines all over the country. And the more that I wrote, the more they started coming out like, dear Patrick, uh, your passion at 14 shines through. And you play the oboe like you sold your soul to the goddamn devil, boy. You don't even need this scholarship, you know? <laughs> you get that oboe money, Patrick. <laughs> And, and like doing this, I felt so whole because these kids were putting themselves out there, like open to judgment, and I had the opportunity to give them the feedback that I never got. But I had, then I had to write one letter. It was to a young dancer, um, I'm gonna call her Sarah, and Sarah was applying for one of the best ballet programs in the entire country. And the judges said that she was really talented, but they were afraid that if she went to this program, they were afraid that her spirit would be beaten down by the judgment implicit in the ballet world around body image, and that she might be better off doing a program in contemporary dance instead. So now I knew that this girl, Sarah, probably didn't look like your stereotypical ballerina, and it was my job to tell her that a factor in why she wasn't accepted was a part of her that 
you know, she maybe couldn't change. And I had spent all my time up till then searching for reason and answers and asking why, but this was a bad reason. <clears throat> I thought about my dad and like, you know, if the answer is just you, what do you do with that? So I reckoned with this and I, I agonized over it for days and then I sat down and I wrote, Dear Sarah, in the future, you would greatly benefit from an intensive ballet program. <laughs> but a program in contemporary dance might be exactly what you need as well. The choice is yours. You have the passion and the drive and the talent to just thrive in any environment you choose to go into, so just go and do it. And after four years of this job and over 700 personally crushed dreams, <laughs> I can confidently say that that wholeness that I felt was, was not writing well-reasoned rejections. It was learning that it just didn't always matter. And it didn't matter which part of me wasn't good enough, especially if it was a reason that I couldn't change or a reason that I would never change. And I learned that acceptance was never the thing that lit my fire anyway. It was always and is still crushing rejection. <laughs> and I hope that if these beautiful little weirdos take anything from these letters, it's that you should never, ever beg someone to tell you why you aren't good enough. You go and you show them how fucking wrong they were. Thank you. That was Otis Gray. Otis is a radio producer and cook from rural Vermont. He also has a podcast called Sleepy, where he reads people to sleep with old books, which I am officially calling the best idea for a podcast ever. And I will be going to sleep with it tonight. That's it for this week here on the Moth Podcast. I hope one of your New Year's resolutions is to listen to and tell more stories. That's really, it's the biggest thing we can do. It's like our way of carving our initials in the table on this planet before we are out of here because we're just here for a flash. Is that a downer? No, that's a, that was an inspirational moment. Remember, you can always pitch us a story you'd like to tell here at The Moth right on our website. Just visit themoth.org. You can also check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we are at The Moth. And Instagram, we are at Moth Stories. Happy New Year to all of you. We mean that from the bottom of our hearts, and we'll see you in 2020. From all of us here at The Moth, we hope you had a story-worthy year. Dan Kennedy is the author of Loser Goes First, Rock On, and American Spirit. He's also a regular host and storyteller with The Moth. Podcast production by Julia Purcell. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.